0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto
0: and Christopher Hurtado.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss, But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community.
0: Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado.
1: And I'm Riley Risto.
0: And today we have with us a very special guest, who is my good friend and sheikh. David Peck. David was born in 1957, raised in Utah and Arizona. He graduated from Brighton High School in Cottonwood Heights, Utah, in '76, and he served as a, an LDS mission uh, or missionary in Seville, Spain, where my wife was an exchange student in 10th grade. His, he also, let's see, your wife also served in in Seville, right? That's correct. Yeah. So he married Rachel Elizabeth uh, Radia of Fairfax, Virginia. They have five children and eight grandchildren. David has a few degrees, and I'm going to ask him why, and and he knows why, and he'll share that with us. He did study um, for a, let's see, he's got an undergraduate degree in history. Uh, He has an undergraduate degree in history from the University of Utah in 1981. He briefly interrupted his studies in 1981 for training in the 142nd Military Intelligence Battalion as a linguist in Iraqi Arabic. Uh, With the Utah National Guard. He completed an MA in Middle East Studies in 85, earned a Juris Doctor degree from S.J. Quinney College of Law in 88, and a PhD in History of the Middle East and Islamic Civilization in 2003. He taught history, philosophy, political science, and religion at BYU, Idaho from 93 to 2020. And he was a Fulbright scholar uh, or visiting lecturer, sorry, at the University of Delhi, India from 2010 to 2011. In 2014, He joined the Sufi Ruhaniyat International and is a student of Pir Shabda Khan, and that's why we're having him on the show today to talk about Sufism. In 2020, he was initiated as a Sufi master and guide. In the same year, he founded the Teton Sufi Circle located near Grand Teton Mountains in Idaho and Wyoming. He's written many articles and essays on Sufism and Islam. He's currently writing a book entitled Of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic. He's begun a series of Sufi Mormon podcasts by the same name, listed at of org. Welcome to the show, David. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. David, let's start with that question I, I hinted at. Why do you have so many degrees?
2: Well... You know, Christopher, we've talked about this before, and uh, I think sometimes life takes us in in strange directions based on our experience. Uh, In my childhood, one of my formative experiences was unfortunately a rather tragic one, and that was um, a period of about uh, almost a year of sustained uh, sexual abuse by a female neighbor, the older sister of of a childhood friend. I was just uh, reaching five years old, and so uh, this really had a, a very deep impact on me and left a lot of wounds in my life. Uh, it was the kind of abuse that comes with uh, death threats and sort of beatings in places that aren't easy to find and those sorts of things. And uh, it's, it's hard when you're, you know, sort of traumatically sexualized at, at, at that early age. And so I think the way, the way I understand all of my education is it's how I buried myself in an area I could be successful in and uh, a way in which I could uh, try to master part of my life. I was good at academics. Uh, I did well in performance of those things. And so, in essence, I was running away from my, my wounds by, by doing that. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I was able to tell my wife about my abuse, and it wasn't until my mid-40s I could talk to my parents about my abuse, and it wasn't until my mid-50s that I actually began to sort of engage in uh, undoing some of those abusive activities, and I think that in a way, it's a pattern that people tend to follow. If they have an area in their life, they feel successful and it gives them a way out. Does that make sense? A, a way of engaging in a successful manner, But I think other people, it can become even more tragic because they may not be able to find that. So a lot of my education was me simply going and going and going and going and going. And it was great education, but I didn't have to face life. Um, I lived in my own kind of little world. So that's that's the story behind a lot of that. And Sufism has had a powerful healing influence on me, and we can talk about that at some point.
0: Thanks for sharing that, David. I, I wanted to ask you that question because we just released an episode recorded when uh, Riley and I were sick by Lindsay Olin, co-founder of Latter-day Peace Studies, and Tom Bogle, who's one of the editors for Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. And it was on this subject of, of knowledge and seeking knowledge for the sake of seeking knowledge. And I'm reminded of, of a hadith, uh, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad that says that there will come a day when people will seek knowledge for the sake, other than for the sake of Allah, other than for the sake of God. And so I found myself, too, in that place of, of making knowledge uh, an idol, you know, something like that. And so I wanted to thank uh, Lindsay and, and Tom again and, and have us you know weigh in on that. How about you, Riley? you have something to say about that?
1: Uh, he may have revealed one of the reasons why maybe I've been so interested in pursuing education. I don't know. I mean, I had a similar experience when I was a child with a babysitter. And I, at the time, I didn't think it was traumatic at all. But maybe that's because I just ran away from it. I have no idea. But uh, it's not something that has Has tortured me necessarily, but it it could explain some things because it's just in my nature to continue to pursue and pursue and pursue. And uh, who knows? I I appreciate your honesty, though, and your vulnerability in sharing that. And, you know, it's it's come obviously
2: over a long period of time and hard won, but um, appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I hope that in some way, as we open up dialogue about this, we'll realize how uh, deeply personal each abusive episode is for an individual, but by creating space, um, you know, I'd like to think that we, we allow people to be able to speak of it in a, in a safe and productive and spiritually beneficial manner. So thank you for giving me that opportunity.
0: Thank you for sharing, David and Riley. David, we have defined on this podcast, we've talked about Sufism as Islamic mysticism you know this is a podcast where we talk about all of the contemplative traditions and all the religions and so that's that's how we've talked about it but you're a sufi and you're a latter day
2: saint so how does that work that's a great question because uh, at times you'd almost think they're incompatible but i think they're they're very highly compatible but let me back up and say the phrase islamic mysticism is accepted by many sufis i'm one of those that's not really all that comfortable with it mostly because uh, I practice and view Suf- Sufism as unattached to any particular religious tradition and unattached to any, any particular religious institution. And so uh, for me, uh, Sufism, I just simply call it the Sufi path. And, uh, you know, we can talk about that more if you'd want, but let me, let me kind of phrase this uh, this way. In the tradition that I belong to, we view spirituality as a divine gift, that has been given by the Beloved to all humans. It was the original teaching given to the first humans. Uh, is a spiritual path, and we wouldn't call it Sufism. We would simply say that Sufism, as we know it today, is within that wisdom tradition, that spiritual tradition, which was revealed and uh, given to humanity by the Beloved so that we would be able to, uh, to seek out a reunion. And so it is the birthright of every human soul. It doesn't it cannot be owned it cannot be uh, any attempt to manipulate it or to to bend it to one's uh, institutional will or private will uh, is is uh, denying its basic nature and so instead of calling it Islamic mysticism uh, we would be far more inclined to call it the original well the, the human spiritual tradition in one manifestation which has historically been associated with Islam how's that yeah, that's, that's interesting.
0: That's a, a different perspective on Sufism than I've had. How, do you, how did you get involved in this? How did you learn about this tradition, this wisdom tradition uh, called Sufism? This isn't, you know, it's not something I heard about at church, right? I, I learned about it through my
2: stu- Islamic studies. That's correct. You've studied, you've studied Islam and you've studied Arabic, and as a result, you're going to be brought into contact with it. So the vision of this that's popular and known among many uh, Sufis, is that uh, Sufi, the traditions, the, the original spiritual tradition has been uh, sheltered, has been advanced under the umbrella of many formal religious traditions. And so Islam would be one of them for Sufism. But Buddhism would be doing the same sort of thing for, and many forms of Buddhism would be doing the same sort of thing, or uh, you know, Jains or or uh, Hindu traditions of various sorts, or Zoroastrianism, or Judaism, the Kabbalah, and these sorts of things would be viewed as, as particular streams, and so they are protected or sheltered or advanced uh, under these guises. Now, how did I get uh, introduced to it? So, when I was an undergraduate student, I, I did take a Course that was dealing with um, the history of the Middle East and and dealt particularly with the origins of Islamic philosophy and and sort of theological efforts in the eighth and ninth centuries primarily, and as it did that, I, I became introduced to uh, people like uh, Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi, who was called the Sheikh al-Akbar, which means the greatest master. Um, who is a sufi of, of, of a powerful sufi credited with writing perhaps uh, uh, over 400 treatises of various lengths and certainly one of the most formative thinkers uh, in religious history and as i did I, I learned about Sufism so let me start by saying i've always known about Sufism and i've long been attracted to mystical traditions of many kinds um, whether they be christian or 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 jewish and and other faiths that are often called Eastern, or however we want to categorize them. Bottom line, learning about mysticism is not spiritual practice. And as I grew older, I was always on the lookout for for someone who could help me cross the line uh, from studying about a spiritual tradition to participating in and growing in the practice of a spiritual tradition. And so uh, when I was on my my Fulbright study in 2010 and 11 at Delhi, I began to ask around about Sufi traditions in South Asia. And uh, I asked at many institutions that I gave lectures at there, and many people said, you need to know a fellow named Salman Chishti. He is uh, a descendant of the founders of the Chishtia order of Sufism, considered one of the four great streams of Sufi tradition in existence. And he and I became dear friends. And as we uh, worked together, I just said, you know, I need to practice. So, so there's, a, there's a moment where, it's, to me, it's the same thing in any spiritual religious tradition to where you may have to make a decision about how real it is to you and how deeply engaged you want to be with it. Uh, because talk about God, talk about uh, a faith, talk about theology. The stuff we do every Sunday in our meetings is talk it's it's talk now that doesn't mean it doesn't have value but the value it has is the value of talk at some point there needs to be for me at least a crossover into practice and that's a different world altogether so there it is i mean a, a lot of reading and a lot of talking came to um moving into practice and it was a powerful moment in my life when i made that transition
0: i can relate to that to that in a very personal way since i you know through islamic studies also knew about sufism and was really waiting and looking and, you know, it's not something that, that I did actively. I wasn't going around asking, hey, does anybody know a Sufi master <laughs> or something like this? But, uh, but just waiting for that master to appear and, you know, preparing myself uh, until I met you, David. And, you know, it, it really is, it really has been personally transformational from the start to actually begin a Sufi practice. And for that, I'm grateful to you uh, as my teacher. David, there, are there other Latter-day Saint Sufis? Are we, are we the only ones? No,
2: no, no, you're not the only ones. Uh, and I'm certainly not the only one. Uh, for a while, people were saying, oh, you're the first Mormon to become a Sufi. And I go, really? I, I don't think so. But I will say this. Most of the Mormons who I knew who became Sufi at an earlier time had done so in connection with leaving the Mormon tradition. Right, and so uh, I may be one of the earliest people that said, "I want to, I don't want to abandon my background as a Mormon. I find value in my background as a Mormon, Um, and uh, I, I don't have to abandon it. That's the beauty of it. Uh, Instead, I feel that my Sufism has enlivened my Mormonism, if you will, and that's why the title of my podcast is." is saints and Sufis, right? It's it's this idea of uh, a balance. So I think it, that it, it uh, works that way. Now, I have probably, oh, right now, just a little under 20 students that I teach, almost all of whom are Mormon to one degree or another. Some of them have formally resigned from the church, I guess we would call it. Others of them are at various stages of engagement, um, and some of them, like me, I, I consider myself fully active, you know, I figure if I pay tithing, I, I'm i pretty committed, right? <laughs> so, so any rate, uh, yeah, there are, there are quite a number. And I think that the numbers growing is why I decided to kind of start reaching out through writing and reaching out through uh, podcasting. And I'm kind of in an early stage with that. But, but I think there's a lot of people out there who, who would want to combine them. so we have to talk about religion and spirituality or faith and and spirituality i think uh, that's a an important distinction and, and and both are possible but we have to address them kind of individually that's mormonism and sufism
1: well that that's actually was going that leads perfectly into my question you know you said earlier that the phrasing of this sentence that you said earlier was i i'm mormon but i became a sufi and and i wonder if if that was an intended way of saying it, or because it almost sounds as if you were one religion, you know, Latter-day Saint, and you became another religion, Sufi, when in reality, I'm not sure that's, is that what you intended to say, or is there another
2: sense in which you meant that? No, thank you. Uh, yes, I meant that as, as a growing type of, of an organic uh, relationship. And, and I think that um, I'm not a fan of binary thinking as a rule. I think there are very few things in existence that are truly binary, including in thought. And so uh, it, it, it's a journey and it's a movement on a path where I pull in what's available to me to help me move along that path. And so as the church has helped me move, well, as Mormonism, I would say more than the church. That's an institutional question. And I don't, I'm not trying to diss the LDS church or anything else, but I'm basically saying that to me, these are movements um, along a path. The way in sufism we would say it is our movement should always be toward the one and if we are moving toward the one that is our personal path and so for me my sufism and my mormonism are an organic an organic path they're not alternatives
1: there we've we've spoken quite a bit on this podcast david about uh, the movement of perennialism And it almost feels like your experience with Sufism is somewhat analogous
2: to perennialism. Do you feel the same? That's a great point. Yes, because uh, as I mentioned before, the vision is that this is the spiritual tradition that belongs to all humanity, has been, been with humanity as long as there has been humanity. Whether or not, you know, where, however we want to consider that, uh, whether that's 200,000 years old or 2 million years old or however we want to look at it. And so that's one angle of looking at this, which is it is this tradition. I have another angle, which is a Sufi angle, by the way, in a very real way, although it's my take on it, which is that we come to this current realm of existence from another realm of existence. And we are not blank slates. We are not tabula rasa because we have experience. And the power of that experience is often understated. But because of that experience, we will tend to express ourselves in similar ways over time. Because that experience lives within us. Uh, and, and as a result, it's not surprising we find patterns or we find reiterations of what looks like, as a perennialist would say, the reappearance of the same spiritual and religious concepts. For the Sufi, we would say, well, it would be surprising if that weren't the case, because we come with a, a common, o- almost overwhelming experience with the divine and with each other. And we bring that with us. It's like a spiritual DNA. So it's not surprising that our offspring bears the record of that DNA, if that makes sense.
1: It seems like that dovetails with LDS theology um, in the sense that, okay, there is a veil of forgetfulness over us. But some things, they, they survive that veil, right? There is some spiritual DNA there, just in the fact that we refer to ourselves as spirit sons and daughters of God, that alone connotes some some, you know, DNA survival through that veil. And, you know, I, I've heard you describe here just in these brief, you know, twenty minutes or so we've been talking Sufism as as the way or the path. And it's interesting to me, again, kind of in that perennial tradition, to to recognize that there are other traditions, faith traditions or practices, which also describe themselves similarly. And and I like how you brought it back to the beginning, and you said really Sufism is about that that initial spiritual path that everyone is taught, and and it's amazing to me to see the not only the divergence of some spiritual paths, but the confluence of them as well as they come together. The more you learn about them, I mean, the Tao means the way, right? This and Jesus described himself as the way, and you know, there's a spiritual practice in in within Hinduism that. Is, is referred to as the Way. And, and so these are all common threads between the various faith traditions that uh, seem to confirm how you describe Sufism generally as that
2: initial spiritual inheritance. Uh, if I were to maybe follow up on that, um, I suppose that what I would say is that... W- Sufis and myself in particular tend to view religion as an expression that arises out of a universal human experience, spiritual experience. And so we don't tend to see religion first and spirituality second. We tend to see the common and universal uh, human uh, spiritual need as the driving force behind the creation of religion. And so that the perennialism is really an expression of a universality that is found within uh, every human soul. And so, yeah, you're going to see things coming up in similar ways because we're in a similar plane of existence, similar concerns. David, would you talk about that need? What is that need? So within my particular Sufi tradition, which is called, the name of the organization is the Sufi Ruhaniyat International. And uh, that particular tradition came to the West from India through a fellow named Hazar Khan in the early 1900s. And it is a universalist tradition. And so in, in the universalist tradition, we don't require faith of any kind. A person simply has to be on this spiritual journey, this universal spiritual journey that we're talking about. And so we work with any faith and we work with no faith. This is, our purpose is to guide the soul. And, and so the way this arises, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. We may want to revisit exactly maybe what you're after, but, but essentially what my role is as a guide is to help the soul awaken itself to itself. So you mentioned veils. For Sufis, we're the origin of the veils. God doesn't put veils over us. God wants to be known, as a famous hadith goes. I was a hidden treasure and loved to be known. And, 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 and this is a light reaching out. And, and light is penetrative, and light is energetic, and light, is, light wants to illuminate. And so for the Sufi, when we talk about a veil of forgetfulness, it's our own veil. I, for for Sufis, I put dozens of veils between me and God. I'm constantly creating through my own sort of ego structures, if you want to call them that, veils. Now, where do those two come from that are universal? First veil is our feeling that we are detached from the divine. We're not detached from the divine. So the Sufi is going to say, this is an illusion, this notion that somehow we're unworthy that the divine has lost track of me or doesn't want me. I've done things that distance me. And so part of the spiritual tradition is to, the Arabic phrase is kashf al-mahjub. I want to lift up the veils and realize I'm already in the divine presence. God is already here. That light is already here. It's not like, the light got turned off, certainly that the Holy Spirit goes to bed at midnight or left the room when somebody swore, or you're going, no, the, the person that swears is exactly the person God wants to work with. You see, this is Jesus. The people he wanted were the publicans and sinners. You know, he, He's going, no, I'm, I'm going to go out. Those are the people that need the physician, not the whole. And of course, so the first wound is that. There's a great Sufi story, and I know I'm rambling, but I'll try to keep this concise. The Sufi story is a Sufi pilgrim comes back to his hometown. He's nearby, one, one day's journey away, been gone a lot, goes to a mosque, just collapses, just exhausted. And of course, to show the sole of your foot is disrespectful in these, many of these cultures. And so his feet are facing the mihrab, the niche that points to Mecca and the Ka'aba someone nudges him, say, soles of your feet are pointed toward the mihrab. You know, you need to move. So he moves, uh, nudges him again. Well, your feet are pointed toward um, a Sufi tomb over there. You're disrespectful to the saint. And he moves and he, this goes on and on. And finally he says, look, you show me where God is not and that's the direction I'll point my feet in. Well, there is no direction, right? You can't, there is no place where there isn't God. And so the realization is that that is an illusion. So that's the first wound. The second wound is, our family relationships, and our relationships with others. We don't live up to duty and expectation. The constant Mormon quest for, am I really going to live all the commandments perfectly? The constant obsession with, am I, am I treating my children the way that whoever, you know, name the expert. The expert has told me I have to treat my children this way. Or am I living up to? And so what Sufism intends to do is liberate the soul to continue on the path to God, knowing they're already there and knowing that they're already loved and knowing that their relationships can be whole and complete and perfect. And if they're not, it's just because we are mixed up about it. Is that helpful? And so, so that's kind of the path right there. It's like wakening yourself up to yourself.
0: Yeah, you've answered my question. Thank you. You know, the, this is your touch on themes that we've Covered on this podcast many times, you know the idea that you're already always worthy. That metaphysically you are in the presence of God. You may not be aware of it, but that's an epistemological issue. It's, it's a question of realization, right? Of of lifting the veils and realizing you are in the presence of God. Those veils are self imposed. They're they're experiential, and instead experiencing the presence of God in our lives, you know, and having a real experience of that. And the idea that authority comes from that experience, not from hierarchy, that it has nothing to do with power, but that it's experiential.
1: Which they might, they might correspond with each other. There might be plenty of examples where hierarchical authority and experiential authority overlap, but that's not a guarantee, right? So the real credibility for the mystic, someone who's seeking for an experience with God, is someone who has actually had that experience with God. Um, David, you said something that was interesting to me because of what I'm reading currently. You said that Sufism is all about helping the soul awaken itself to the self, and I'm reading the Upanishads right now, and you know it, it's it's a little bit dissonant for me because I've been in this you know sort of study of psychology and whatnot for a couple of years with Jung, and and his conception of the self is is sort of more aligned with the ego. And, and there's there's a sense in which at least for the Upanishads, that the self it's referring strictly to the true self that 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 inheritance from god of of who you really are and so for the in the Upanishads, so far at least what i've what I've read is that the great journey of life is to discover the self much in the same way that you've you've said here that help the soul awaken itself to the self. I love that phrase
2: well, um let me see if I can this is deeply embedded in LDS scripture and tradition, but we often don't recognize it. So I'll quote Lehi, but it'd be a paraphrasis probably, no doubt I'll miss something. But but essentially, O my sons, I would that you would awake and arise and shake the dust from off your feet. Or I believe another paraphrasis of Paul is Oh, that I would, you would awaken, arise, and put on the light of Christ. Or Isaiah, awaken, arise, awaken, arise, awaken, arise, awaken, arise, awaken, arise, awake arise. That's the path, which is in premortality, so to speak. The Sufi will say the first awakening was the soul, which is eternal. So God didn't create our souls. Our souls, uh, Hazar Khan simply says the best descriptor he has for soul is intelligence. But it was self-contained. It was unaware. It didn't know of anything other than itself. And so what the divine does is awaken that soul. And then the divine in this tradition said, do you accept me as your Lord? And I will set you on a path. I will set you on a path of full realization. Do you accept me as your Lord? Which is uh, stated in Quran 7, 172, right? Alastu tu be And they, they swore, uh, they, they, they gave this promise. They said, based upon their selves, on their soul. Yea, we so accept upon our own soul. And so awake and arise, awake and arise is the pattern. Of course, that's the first instruction ever given to humans. Awake and arise. And so the way of looking at this entire Sufi path, and this is something I am writing about, is a, a in every realm of our existence, we must awaken again and awaken to the challenges of that realm. And this is the first realm where we have been cut off from the immediate presence of the divine in a sensory sense or in a feeling sense, right? It's, it's not a complete cutoff, but the notion is, I feel I'm disassociated. I have a body with all these powerful sensory inputs. I have all, a mind that, that tries to help me understand, and I need to awaken and I need to arise, and then after this life for the Sufi, I must awaken. I must arise, and so on and so forth. And so the path, the trajectory, has always been with us, and will always be with us. And that, and I think that this is stated beautifully within our own scriptural tradition. But we, it's hidden in plain sight, I guess. I don't know,
1: David. We did an episode on um, Section Seventy Six of Doctrine and Covenants a while back, and the original. Genesis for that came from studying in the New Testament where, where Joseph and Sidney were spending a lot of time in, in the New Testament, and they came across this teaching of, of Jesus that essentially pointed to death and resurrection as kind of, as kind of the way, right? And, and we, we dove into that deeply. And what you're describing sounds very much like that. This awake and arise, essentially, it's, it's a death and a rebirth. You're going from one uh, sense of awareness or consciousness, and, and you're awakening to another sense, and you're arising out of whatever it was you were, you know, mired in before into a new state of existence. Um, restoration movements, this should really resonate for people who are into the mode or understanding of restorationism. And so this, this is going to prompt a question for me uh, that I want to I pose to you is, was Joseph Smith a Sufi?
2: Uh, When I talk about Joseph Smith to my Sufi friends, they go, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So a brief anecdote. Uh, In 2014, I was invited to um, a meeting of of the universal Sufi uh, movement, and it was in Istanbul. And this is where I met my master, Khan, a beautiful human being. But while I was there, there were only 24 of us there, and 21 were Sufi masters from all over the world. We did have a Hindu Swami. We did have a Zen priestess, a a monk. And we had me. And I'm really feeling way out of my depth here. I mean, these are some of the the greatest spiritual masters within the the Sufi world. But while while I was there, uh, I met Jonathan Granoff, president of Global Security Institute, and a Sufi. And Jonathan sat me down and he's he's interested in politics because he works with the UN and he works with all kinds of organizations. And he, he said, we just had Mitt Romney run. He's a Mormon. I don't know anything about Mormons. So let me ask you a question, David. Are Mormons mystics? And I said, yes and no. And he said, "What do you mean, yes and no?" And I said, "Well, I told him the first vision story in encapsulated form, and and of course, when when jo- the Joseph Smith first vision stories, all of them account for being in the divine presence. He 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 immediately lights up. Aha, Joseph Smith is a mystic. They they immediately get that. And then then he said, "Well." You said, but you're also not mystics. He said, but let me guess. So you train your young men and young women, your 14-year-olds with spiritual exercises, fasting, prayer, meditation, and, and you send them out in the woods and, and basically say, don't come back until you find God. Like Joseph Smith. And I go, well, that's where we're not mystics. And uh, because we institutionalize the experience. But I think understanding Joseph Smith as a mystic is a powerful way of understanding Joseph Smith. He certainly behaves like a Sufi mystic, in in how he addresses problem. My mind couldn't make up what to do. I couldn't settle on anything else. Well mind does that. You simply revisit your assumptions and then the assumptions of those assumptions and and you it's hard to find a resting place. So, you know, he reads, he goes out, and he has this incredible experience. And I think, is it the 1832 version of the first vision really is the most mystical to me. I felt the the presence of God throughout the cosmos. I felt the forgiveness of my soul. It's not about churches, sects. It's not about any of those broader theological discourses. It's about Joseph Smith and his soul before the divine. That is a mystic. Well, one thing we've brought to the fore
1: in our prior episodes is this idea that even in the later account of Joseph Smith's first vision, it wasn't necessarily about sex and religion at all anyway. If there was any condemnation, it wasn't of, it wasn't of churches. It was of dogmas. It was of, it was of the creeds specifically that were, that were denounced. And that fits perfectly into more of a mystical interpretation of, of Joseph Smith's experience. I love that you mentioned that Jonathan Granoff asked, let me guess, you know, it's 14-year-olds, you sent him into the wilderness, and it's like, okay, Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old that went into the wilderness, and he had the mystical experience, the theophany that kicks off movements always. That's always the pattern. And what happens is the pattern tends to get systematized, and um I don't want to say coercive. I, I, there's a better word for it. Maybe uh it just becomes orthodox. But in any sense, you can't necessarily teacher prescribe mystical experience. That's what makes it mystical. And it was the uncertainty and doubt about those patterns that Joseph Smith had, it seems to me anyway, that led him into his own personal mystical experience with God.
2: I think that's a very powerful observation. So kind of the way uh, the Sufis I hang out with deal with this or think about this is that revelation is given profound experience. Humans have this. And the moment we share it, then within one or two generations, it's institutionalized. It becomes a religion. And religions have within them uh, power structures and authority structures. And those then begin to say, the institution is responsible for your soul. But the institution can never be responsible for your soul because it's by your own experience that you learn to judge good from evil, not by somebody else's experience, not by a creed, not by a dogma. It's by your experience. And and so the role of the Sufi guide, kind of just to touch on something that, that I talked with Christopher before, but the role of the Sufi guide is to help the individual's soul find itself, right? That's all it is because I don't have authority over their soul. And if I try to assert authority over the soul, it is by definition, unrighteous dominion. It's not my dominion. It is unrighteous. I have no right to do that. Now, does that mean I, I wouldn't share in a church or I wouldn't? It's just that when we get to the point where we seek to impose our will upon others, we run into trouble. But to the extent a church helps us to awaken and rise, it's helpful. But that's why mystical traditions and wisdom traditions are one-on-one. You have to, and institutions can't be one-on-one by their very nature, but you have to be one-on-one because you're dealing with the experience of that disciple, not anybody else's experience. So if that makes some sort of sense, then the, from this Sufi point of view, yes, the institution can do many wonderful and great things and be very helpful and provide great, great insight, leadership, example. It can do that. It might do something else, but I mean, that's its potential. But it can't work with the individual until you are working with the individual. And that's why I think these patterns complement the institutional and the mystical guide. The guide needs to lovingly help the person find themselves. And, and that's why I think so many traditions around the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, all these, have that guide aspect. Right. But I think sometimes we're left on our own. Just go pray every day, pray. Well, what do you mean? And so I think the role of the guide is to help out.
0: That brings up the question then, what does a Sufi master or guide do? How how does how does the teaching work?
2: Okay, so being a wisdom tradition, the the teaching has to work with a master or guide who is further down the path than others. And that doesn't mean they're perfect, or that doesn't mean they really have answers. A a master doesn't have answers for other people. The answer lies within the person. First of all, a Sufi guide must have respect for another person's soul. Absolute respect. Meaning, that soul of that person is eternal. It has every characteristic in it that the divine has generosity, love, kindness, compassion, you know, strength, all of the divine characteristics are in that soul. And so it begins with a deep respect for that person. And so if you really are trying to introduce them to their soul, that's how you do it. Many Sufis among themselves will greet each other by, you know, saying, what's your name? And the answer will be God. And yeah, my name is God. And so is yours. And until we realize that, we're in a power relationship. So it has to be a loving relationship where I lead down I I try not lead I move a little further and say have you thought about this? Second of all, it is an honest relationship. It becomes somewhat intimate. The guide learns about the disciple. And as they learn about the disciple, there can be painful and personal things that go along. So it has to be one of helping the person uncover the divinity within them that they already are God. That, that they already are divine and bring this into the fore, But it has to be through pain, in some cases through abuse, in other cases through death and grief and loss, or in other cases. And so you look for the two wounds, feeling you're disassociated from God, which we call the primary narcissistic wound. The secondary narcissistic wound then is I feel like I've failed others, especially my family. And so... You get to know these people, and you have to then choose the things that you prescribe for um, methods, actions. You have to do it in accordance with what that, where that person's at, and what they may be needing. And so, you're really a recommender of the path. You're really an observer. And here's an important point, very quickly, which is we live in the self-help age, and so a lot of people say, "Well, give me a Sufi book; I'll read it myself, and I'll do this." But from the Sufi perspective, all you've done because the goal is to release yourself from the prison of your, your ego, so to speak, and to find that you're in the presence of the divine and that you are eternal. Well, when a person does self-help, the problem is you're putting the ego in charge of annihilating the ego. <laughs> uh, that's, that's never going to work uh, because you don't have the loving, experienced not just observer, but interlocutor and, and guide who's willing to point out, well, that sounds a little egoistical to me right there. sounds like, you know, what do you think? So at any rate, that's it. And so when I work with my students, meditation is, is prescribed in terms of breathing meditations. Uh, we do a lot of work with spiritual imagination. Um, uh, one of the methods I work with students is that we work on a deep meditative exercise that helps them to construct within their, their, themselves the image of their soul as a tree of life. We use, uh, you know, that's one of them. I mean, we use uh, the heart fountain is another one I use. The Sufi winged heart. What is taking you upward? How are you arising? And this is highly personal to each one of them. So another thing we do is we will chant and recite the divine names. But these are not just mantras to us, although the sounds are important to us. But these are awakening the characteristics of the divine within us. So we might chant, Ya Karim. Oh, generous one. But what we're really doing is we're awakening within our soul the fact that I am Al-Karim. I am the generous one. It's not God isn't out there. God is in here. And so they're both connected. Anyway, so a lot of it is what the person needs and how to prescribe it and uh, so forth. Okay, the
0: first, the first point you brought out, David reminded me of a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal nations cultures arts civilization these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat but it is immortals whom we joke with work with marry snub and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors this does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn we must play but our merriment must be of that kind and it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. It's so beautiful, and that's how, and that's how the the, the Sufi master addresses all others, right? I mean, obviously uh, a student, but really all others. It's that recognition of of the divine in the other. David,
1: uh, something that called to mind, you know, we we are we are a podcast dedicated to contemplation. That that's. And we're always thinking about trying to create spaces of contemplation where the listener can be participants with us instead of just observers or listeners. And uh, you know, you you named several practices or or methods you might use to awaken someone to that to that self that you identified earlier. And I wonder if there's and and maybe draw upon your your experience with this. But is there is there one that you could use as an example that we could sort of play out right now with, with Christopher and I, and, and have you lead us in, in just a very basic Sufi contemplative practice?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you asked. Um, so let me talk about what we often call centering breath, which is how to contact. And we are very much in line with the traditions of breathing. Um, I don't know if you know Paul Reps who wrote the book Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and in, in the back of it, uh, traced a lot of the origins of breathing techniques in China, Tibet, and elsewhere back to their ancient origins. Paul Reps was, was closely associated with Hazarinai Khan, the founder of our our order. And so we we accept all these breathing traditions. So the idea of centering breath is to create what I call soul space. In other words, if you have an authentic voice that can can bring you immediately into a a zone of truth and reality um, it's going to be soul space it's not your mind it's not that the mind's evil i mean we're not we certainly don't preach that or that ethics are irrelevant and rules we don't preach that either Uh, but that everything should proceed from the soul so we need to create that soul space this is a very short exercise and i'd be happy to walk us with it that I encourage students to use daily throughout their life. If they're in a place where things are going wrong or they're spiritually perturbed, take just a minute, two minutes. And it uses the Arabic phrase, la ilaha illallah, which is, of course, there is no God but Allah, or there is no God but God. Allah is a name to the Sufi, not some... Other reality. It's a name or a title. So we could say the divine, the beloved. I love the beloved because it is love. But it would say there is no God but God. And we do this. On the inhale, we would say accept God. On the exhale, we'd say there is no God. But this gets simplified even further for many of my students. This is one that Jonathan taught me. It's so beautiful. On the inhale, Only you. On the exhale, not me. Not me, only you. And then, if the person finds their soul, we create that soul space, the soul can tell us what that means in a particular area of their life. And it'll mean something different to that person from another person. So, it's a seeking of self revelation, revealing the self to the self. So, Here's what I would do. We can talk through it very quickly. I'm going to count five. We'll inhale. And as we we close, we can close our eyes. You can find any focal point you want. I use what's known in Raja Yoga as the Ajna Chakra up here in the forehead, the third eye area, as my focal point, if you will. Just a place to center. And as we inhale, and you can do it through the nose, out the nose. It doesn't matter at this point. Until you get into advanced breathing, it's just not, it's the breathing the breath of life, remembering that the divine said, I put into the human, my spirit, my spirit, the breath of life. We're seeking to put into us on the inhale, that spirit, the breath of life. So we're going to count five and then inhale and exhale. And as we inhale, I'll talk you through it. Only you, not me. So go ahead and exhale. And then we begin the five count. Inhale, slow and steady. One, Two, three, four, five, exhale, one, two, three, four, five, inhale, only you, only you exhale, not me, not me, inhale, only you, exhale not me. Now, as you do this, you may have something arise that comes into your consciousness as you do this, that reminds you of ways in which me is in charge, or you might find ways in which the beloved is in charge. And each of these will be experiences for you and you alone. But this breath centers you back in your soul, re-energizes and revitalizes you and allows you then simply to say in what ways is my ego my narcissism bending others to my will thinking them of as objects or or my relationships at work or whatever it is or in what ways am i the divine in what ways am i possessed of, of the characteristic of the divine love how do i love Who can I love better? How can I express that love more fully? And then we come back into our consciousness when we're ready. This can be done in one minute. It can be done in two minutes. It can be done in five minutes. Some of us stay there for hours. Okay. That's, is that helpful to give kind of one quick, that's just a thing. It's an exercise that can be done anywhere. Anytime, any, it can be done on a train in a doctor's office. Try, you know can't be done driving your car. It can't be done in the passenger seat. (laughs) Unless your focal point is the bumper in front of you, right? (laughs) Or that flashing red light in the rearview mirror.
1: (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with us. I love that.
0: My experience of it is that it was incredibly restful. As brief an exercise as it was, it was restful. And, no pun intended, inspirational. Uh, So, David, another... Another spiritual practice you mentioned already is invoking qualities of God in the Islamic tradition known as the 99 names of God. You didn't mention 99 names, you just mentioned a few of them, and you said earlier that, that these are qualities of our own souls, and that when we invoke these names of God, we're invoking them in ourselves.
2: Would you go into that a little bit more? Okay, yes, and there are more than 99 for Sufis. In fact, Ibn al be said, The number of names are infinite, but we can't work with that. It's totally unworkable. But they're not as they would be understood necessarily in the Islamic world either. Sufis have their own spiritual understanding of these things. But the notion is that because our soul is—it's hard to talk about these things because we talk about quantities and stuff and material—but whatever our soul is, is the same as God, and it's the same as your soul. There is no hierarchy between our souls among ourselves. Instead, um, but, but there is individuality. My composition of these divine qualities is different than yours. And so for the Sufi, personality is in large respect. It can be taught, it can be learned, it can be, but is in large respect an expression of the uniqueness, the, the if you will, absolute variety within humans is found in the uniqueness of my soul. So that's why the guide tries to find something that that soul resonates with. And that's, that's the word we use is resonance, resonance and attunement. When we resonate, we tune to that resonance. That's the mystical practice. And so, uh, the names help us to do that, but the effect is individual, right? Although the names are uniform. Now, very quickly, um, the, the idea, well, Joseph Smith said this, I think it's in the third lecture of faith, of lecture on faith, if I remember right, where, where Joseph Smith said, if, if someone would know God, they must know the character of God. And we could say that's God out there. But for the Sufi, they're saying, no, you're learning about your divine character. What you're really after is how you have these characteristics within you and then how to bring them into your life with other people. And I think it's what distinguishes Sufism to a certain degree from some other traditions is that it's the awakening of your soul. And, and that's the deep focus is to introduce you to your soul and bring about that beautiful union and that that's the divine's work and glory. It's, it's to bring about. So I don't know if that helps. So we use, we use the Islamic names. And there are 99. We have others. And uh, when I initiate new disciples, I often will give them one of the names that is a divine name. I have, a, I have a, one disciple who is very much uh, into theology and knowledge. And so the name I gave him was um, Alim. Alim is from Ilm, which you know means knowledge. To others, it was her quality of love was so overpowering to me that the name was Rahmana, right? Which, mean, which is a name of love. And so the guide. Tries to find, because when you're initiated, you're given a Sufi name, find a way to find a name that seems to be a lead name in the, in the estimation of the guide to awaken within them. And then we move through the names according to where the person is. And uh, if they don't work, we move on. My experience has been, if a person sincerely dedicates themselves to the name that has been requested, that they discover themselves in a beautiful new way. And I will say this. I have several students who are angry at the church because of a policy on this or a policy on that, whether it's women in the priesthood or whether it's LBGTQ, they're angry, very angry people. And after six months, a year of Sufi practice, many of them come back and they go, I'm still onto those issues. I've not given up my desire to change that, but I'm not angry anymore. And when I go, I'm among my community in my ward, I begin to see them as people who are trying to find God who are trying to find themselves. And I have more compassion in my heart. I'm not angry at so-and-so who won't shut up about the three Nephites helping them out in their testimony. I'm not. So I think what happens is as we get in touch with our soul, we get in touch with other souls. So at any rate, that's, that's why the names are important, I think, because they give us a way of understanding our own character.
0: David, we've talked about Joseph Smith as a Sufi. Let's talk about Jesus as a Sufi. And, and if you would talk about how a Sufi master teaches, and, and how Jesus teaches, and, and talk about the parallels in, in, the, in the Christ-like teaching, or the Sufi master teaching. I think that would be okay. helpful.
2: Okay. Um, these are all very insightful. I think your podcasts that you've been doing have really brought both of you to a level of asking these really wonderful questions, and I hope I, I do them justice in my responses. So let me make two comments on Jesus. Comment number one. Um, years ago, I was asked to participate in a panel discussion for secondary education students at BYU Idaho. They invited me and they said, We'd like to talk about Christlike teaching. And I was a third member on the panel. And the first one, it was, well, if you're a Christ-like teacher, you do the following things. And the next one is, if you're a Christ-like teacher, you don't do the following things. And when they came to me, I go, Well, let me see if I understand Jesus as a teacher. So to one person, he says, Neither do I condemn thee how beautiful is this the judge of creation says i'm not going to judge you you don't need my judgment you don't that's not what you need go your way and sin no more to the next one at jacob's will he says yeah and the guy you're shacked up with now is not your husband right and she says a prophet is among us to the next one he says uh you know uh, your whited sepulchers beautiful outward filled with dead men's bones and all manner of filth And maybe that's what wakes up in Nicodemus, or I don't know, but I'm going to say treatment like that where they go, oh, wait a minute, I have to awake, then I can arise. I'm asleep in my Pharisaism. So then to the final one, he says, where's my whip, right? Give me the whip, because these people need the whip. Those people need the, I'm going to call you out for your hypocrisy. That person needs like, you know, you're not doing what you say you're doing. You're not walking your talk. And then to the first one goes, you've been beat up enough. Dragged out here with these men who accuse you publicly, who you know you just humiliate. What you need is you need just blanket forgiveness. And so, first of all, Jesus a Sufi possesses discernment. A Sufi guide and a Sufi themselves should attempt always to cultivate discernment. There are no rules. The rule is what does that soul need? And we see this in many religious traditions. Like in Zen, you need a bamboo swat to the head with a stick. Well, then you get one but others may need to be forgiven. So Jesus as Sufi is the ultimate discerner of the souls of people. Penetrating insight that the master of masters should always seek that what I do and how I interact is exactly fit to the need that is in front of me. Now, we want to make a religion and say it applies every time and every place. Jesus didn't do that. The second thing about Jesus as Sufi that uh, I would emphasize, uh, other than the gift of discernment, comes from the the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. You have this beautiful setup where Jesus goes in the mountain. Those who want to follow him leave the multitude and go into the mountain. It's an ascension path. What qualities and characteristics do they have? That's the Beatitudes. And then he begins to talk about lights on the hill and lights on candles, saying, you guys may not know this. Your soul is a light. Just like the divine is a light, your soul is a light, and in your community, you are a city. Be a light. Don't hide your light. Then he goes in this really wonderful discussion of why ethics exist. You've heard it said by them of old, don't don't kill. I say don't get angry. You've heard it said by them of old, don't lust, or commit adultery. I say don't lust. He's looking toward what he calls the fulfillment of the law, and the fulfillment of the law is beyond the ethical matter. Because if you don't lust, you don't need a commandment that says, don't commit adultery. If you don't get angry, you don't need a commandment that says, don't kill. You're going to fulfill the ethical principle, the commandment. You're going to be so full of, of spiritual power, of soul power. You're going to, your ethics are going to be greater. They're going to be fulfilling the law. And then at the end of it, what does he say at the end of that chapter? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect perfect but perfection is not ethical perfection is a path follow follow the guide leave the multitude climb the mountain cultivate the soul characteristics of meekness and humility and and poverty of spirit find those in you and and then and then let's move on to your works what your works ought to be are the works of light they aren't you know i told you you have to do this it's like the difference between ministering as it's supposed to be and home teaching as it, as it was, which is ministering, I should be shining my light wherever and however, right? We still think it's home teaching, I think, but at any rate, right? And then, and then finally, where he comes down, and then, of course, perfection then. Perfection is, is soul perfection. It's soul living. And then, of course, at the very end, howsoever you would that others do unto you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You want to know what the law and the prophets is? It's this path I've just revealed to you. So my vision of Jesus as Sufi is sitting atop that hill. And some of us know who he is and we're moving up that hill toward him. But there's other people on the other side of that hill that are climbing. And they may not come from a tradition that talks about Jesus. They might come from another tradition. But they're climbing that hill. They're leaving the multitudes. They're climbing the hill. They're finding humility and poverty of spirit. They're letting their light shine through their works. They're doing all of that. And so when the time comes that they might figure out who's on top of that hill from a Christian perspective, they're already on the top of the hill. Whereas I might sit at the foot, I might sit at the foot, I was just going to say, I might sit at the foot and point at them and say, well, they're wrong because they're Zoroastrians or they're wrong because they're whatever. When in reality, they're climbing that hill when I'm standing at the bottom pointing my finger. The Sufi path is climbing the hill. I love that. I, I was listening to a, a lecture by a,
1: uh, an imam, and there was a Christian who asked a question during a Q&A period who essentially said, you know, why don't you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And his answer was, let me tell you what we believe about Jesus. And he went through all of the ways that Jesus has outlined the path and how he and other faithful Muslims have made an attempt to follow that path as closely as they possibly could. And what you've, what you've highlighted here is this idea that, you know, someone could climb all the way to the top before they find out really who Jesus is, quote unquote, as if we really can ever attain that. But, um, that's maybe the least important part about him. And, and yet it's the part that's focused on so much rather than following the example that he outlined, the path that he laid out, the way that he was and is. He is the way, the truth, the light. Instead of focusing on that, we're we're hyper focused on this like doctrinal racquetball that we bat back and forward as if we've got
2: the upper hand on somebody.
0: Yeah, who and what Jesus is is the focus of dogma. It's the focus of creeds. Yeah.
2: For people who don't like creeds, we sure have invented a lot of them. You know. Yeah, we we talk about that with the articles of faith. And- <laughs> I wonder what first vision, what first vision, yeah, we would have. And that's okay. We all do this. This isn't a Mormon thing. I mean, if people think this is a Mormon thing, they miss the whole boat. This is a human thing. Because as we face our wounds, we try to create defensive barriers. Barrier number one, I'm going to redefine my ethics and my relationship to God. You're out. I'm in. I'm good. This is a a human response to these wounds. So Sufism can be a painful path because it begins to uncover the wounds that we've hidden. It, it, I, I once had somebody saying, oh, so what a convenient path. It was a, happened to be an LDS leader and said, oh, you've chosen the path of convenience. And I go, how so? I've, co- I've chosen a path of brutal honesty. If you saw my weeping, if, if you felt the pain in the depth of my soul, my desire to undo things I've undone, to unsay things I've said, how could you, how could you even know my path? You're just saying, because I'm not saying it the way you would want me to say it, that it's invalid. And I'm going, what a negation. We believe we're all children of God except you because you don't agree with me. Yeah, I think we run into that kind of thing a
1: lot, Uh, judgment from the perspective of authority and and doctrine. And uh, that doesn't resemble the way. That doesn't resemble the path. Um, And it certainly, from what we're hearing from you, David, doesn't really describe Sufism at all. It's... It is a difficult journey of awakening the self to the self. Uh, it involves a lot of difficulty in climbing. You mentioned the ascension. That's something we've talked about on multiple occasions. In fact, we talked about the ascension in the Beatitudes. We had a whole episode on that mm, with our, our good friend Morgan, Morgan Aldis, which we would commend to anyone who's interested.
0: But um, That's the alchemy of Beatitude, right?
1: Yes, yes, that's right. We talked about ascension as a theme within alchemy, but um, I think what you've done for us today, David, is is kind of outlined the the true beauty of Sufism and the universality universality of it, which is something that's very attractive to us as as I guess we, we might be called perennialists or of that um, mindset. So I personally very grateful that you had the the uh, time to spend with us today and um, share
0: with us your wisdom. Yeah, you've you've told us that uh, that. We don't have to be, so we, we're always looking at how we can borrow from contemplatives or mystics and other traditions. If Sufism is Islamic mysticism, we can borrow from it. But as you've described it, we can become Latter-day Saints Sufis. Saints and Sufis. Thank you for that. Saints and Sufis, yes.
2: Just in conclusion, I want to thank you. I have felt the power of your soul's as I have conversed with you today, and Sufis are very much believers where two or three meet to seek the divine, then the revelation of that eternal presence is given to us. And I have felt this today, and I wish to thank you for the gift of your presence.
0: Thank you also for the gift of your presence, Sheikh Dawood. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us. Well, for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado.
1: And I'm Riley Riston.